No one has the balls to stand up like I'm doing right now. Stop the crap already. We're all Americans. We're all equal. I don't see black. I don't see Asian. I don't see anything but American. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. We'll do a little summation from last uh, podcast that we had. I think we went through my whole police career and leading up to me being with the Saudi Arabians. And the next thing is we had a big party in La Jolla, California. And then I jumped out of a plane. That was probably the best and greatest break of my life in more ways than one. I broke my leg in half, my ankle in half, bone was sticking out. I come back to New York City and uh, I'm told, uh, you're not going to be able to come back to the police department. You were not putting you on full duty, which to me was a really a blow because all I wanted to be was a homicide detective. I was involved with breaking one of the biggest mass homicides, the Palm Sunday massacre. And all I wanted to do was be a detective. And they told me they weren't going to allow me back on. So normally when you retire, I had 30 line of duty injuries. I could have retired with uh, tax-free money, uh, job-related. I didn't hang around for that. I was so depressed about not being able to be a real detective. I handed my papers in. cost me at least a million and a half, maybe $2 million up to date today of tax-free money, which I didn't get. And a lot of people say, well, Bo, why didn't you wait around? Because I didn't want to play a game. When you play the game there, you have to stay out on light duty. You visit the surgeons and they check your injury. I didn't have time for that. My life was at 100 miles an hour and I wanted to continue. So I retired. And we all know about me meeting with this guy, Nicholas Pelleggi. He was the author of Goodfellas and uh, Casino. And he became one of my best friends. He put me as the feature story in New York Magazine, How New York Lost the Top Detective. Next thing's happening, I'm doing all talk shows. Every corporate heads want me to be the director of security for this, director of security for that. And I, I, for about a month or two, I was in a really deep depression. I was sitting home, it was like a cloud that came over. I didn't know what I was gonna do. Next thing is I said, well, I'm gonna get my private investigating license, security license, I don't want to work for anybody. I'll open my own shop. At that same time, my congressman, the great Joseph Adabo, he was the head of defense appropriation. He ends up dying in office. He was a good friend on my uncle, Joe Timpanaro, Timpy, the plumber. And uh, my uncle used to be, uh, he put it this way, he funded him pretty well through the years. I met Congressman Adabo uh, over the years. And uh, he actually was putting me up as a page boy in 1962 two or three when I was 12 years old, a uh, page boy in Washington. And I said to my uncle, I don't want to be no friggin' page boy. <laughs> I'm a street kid. Well, I'm going to walk around with a little hat in the, in, in the Capitol. No. So now we have Joe Adabo dies in office. My brother Al says to me, you know, Bo, you could run for Congress. I said, what does a congressman do? Next thing is I meet with the Republican and conservative parties. And there was a couple of state senators that were vying for the for the Republican uh, nomination. I meet with this guy named Haggerty, and he was the head of the uh, Republican Party from Queens. And I told him why I wanted to run for Congress. My big issues was the crime, the crack, and the corruption. They might sound similar, because my friend Rudy Giuliani took my three C's from me when he ran for mayor. We had a big crime problem then, like today. The crack was crazy, and the corruption with Manus, it was, it was the three C's were there. So now I'm running for Congress, 
and I'm going at it. And uh, I I just started uh, meeting people all over my congressional district. I started doing this. Next thing is I get a phone call from Washington from a guy named Lee Atwater. He was the head of the Republican Party. And he says, Bo, we're following your campaign. We're doing some polling. You got great name recognition. You could win it. I said, wait a second. It's seven to one Democratic registration. You know, this is going to be an uphill battle, but I'm not afraid of uphill battle. So now I run and I end up getting the nomination, the Republican and the conservative party's nomination for the sixth congressional United States Congress. So now I'm running and I get this call from Lee Atwater and he goes, President Ronald Reagan would like to see you in Washington next Tuesday or whatever day it was. I said, what? So now I get on a plane, I invited my brother Al with me, my daughter Jacqueline. She was only 12. I said, come on, we'll go meet the president. Little did I know, I just can't bring people into the White House for lunch. I thought he was inviting me for lunch or whatever. So I get there. Lee Atwood is there and says, uh, you know, no disrespect, your brother and your daughter can't come into the White House. So now I'm in the White House. I'm waiting to come in there. I'll never forget there was a Senator Lee, uh, Barry Goldwater was there with another United States senator. Lee Atwater says, Bo, the president will see you now. And it was supposed to be for a photo op. In other words, get a picture from my campaign literature, and that was going to be it. I walk in there, lights came on. Next thing is, I'll never forget, President Reagan goes, Bo Diddle, a real American hero. I was, I, my feet were like, I, I couldn't feel him anymore. Next is he sits me down and the, the chairs by the fireplace, and he goes, you sit right over here, Bo. He starts going through my life. You were really, you were mugged 500 times, Bo. You're this, you're that, and you were a decoy, and, and you really protected the witnesses. And the president knew all about me, and then he goes, I hear you're going to be doing a movie soon, Bo, and Sylvester Stallone wants to play you. I said, well, Mr. President, you're going to be out of a job soon. Why don't you play me? He starts laughing. I'm a little long in the tooth. Now, to fast forward, he knew all about my, my life, and they do, did a lot of background on me, and he says, you know, Bo, I need a guy like you in Congress to take care of some of those guys on the other side of the aisle. I said, Mr. President, if I win this congressman, I, I'll have your back, and I'll be right in Congress fighting for us and fighting for this country because I'm a fighter. And I stayed there. I think it was all of 12 minutes, but it felt like it was a, a day. And next thing is I left, and I'll— one thing reminded me, if you remember James M. Cohan, when he met, I think it was FDR, when he started dancing down the steps. I started dancing down the steps of the White House. When I went there, my brothers, I told them what happened. Next thing is I go to a fundraiser in New York City. We fly in. I got Senator D'Amato there. Now people realize that I really could win this. Now, the area was 7-1 Democratic registration, but I had enough uh, hype about Bo Deedle. Everything was going on. And I had my office, my campaign office, on uh, 101st Avenue in Ozone Park. And everyone knew I grew up with John Gotti. So Richard Gotti comes up to my office. He knocks on the door. He goes, Bo. He goes, Johnny sent me over. Anything you need, you need posters hanging and all that. I said, no, just tell Johnny, please. I love him, but he's got to stay far away from me because that's all they got to pick up. That Bo Deedle running for Congress is best friends and childhood friends with John Gotti. That wouldn't have looked too good politically. And now I run, and again, I really ran to win, and no one could buy me, and I, I put, raised a lot of money. 
And now I go before, and I'll never forget, I go before uh, the different uh, uh, boards, the political boards. New York Post, of course, endorsed me. And then I go, and I don't go, but it was a guy named Starr from the New York Times editorial board. He says that he called me up. This guy never called me up. So what happens is uh, they, they run an editorial that they're endorsing Floyd Flake, the Democrat, over me. And now I said, Max Frankel, that was his name, the editor of the New York Times. I call up Max Frankel. I said, Mr. Frankel, with all due respect to the New York Times, no one asked to interview me. No one knows why I'm running for Congress. I think you guys should have given me the opportunity to listen to me. He goes, well, Starr, the guy named Starr, told me he called you and you didn't return his call. I said, you tell Mr. Starr that he's full of shit because if he called me, I would have gone there. So he goes, do you want to come in tomorrow at 10 a.m.? I said, I'll be there. So I go there with my Sergeant Campbell, and he's my ex-Sergeant, Detective Sergeant, and we're sitting in the editorial board with Max Frankel's there and the editorial board. Next thing is I come out with a tape recorder, a big tape recorder, and I put it on, and I go like this. This is so I don't get misquoted. For about an hour and a half, two hours, I get interviewed by the editorial board, and I tell them about being stabbed, shot up, being a decoy, caring about the kids and caring about uh, the, 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 all, all the people of my area, caring about the people of America and why I'm running. The next day, they actually did an editorial where they apologized to me. They spelled my name wrong. They apologized for spelling my name wrong. And they said that I would make a most formidable United States congressman, although... We're not going to change our endorsement from the Reverend Floyd Flake. But you don't get the New York Times to apologize to too many people. And I got to have a lot of respect for Mr. Max Frankel. He gave me the opportunity to know what I was running about. So I end up running. And again, I went to South Jamaica, all the black neighborhoods. I didn't care. I was a cop in every black neighborhood. I was the servant to the black community all the time I was on the police department. So nobody can run that crap about black, white. I saw black-on-black crime. I picked up a lot of dead children. My last case was 10 dead, including eight children dead. So when people talk about black and white, I don't see black and white. I see Americans, and I was the servant again to the black community. So I'd go to St. Albans, Cambria Heights, South Jamaica, and Floyd Flake, the Reverend Floyd Flake says to me, you know what, Bo, you got some balls to come over here. I says, come on, Reverend. This is, I'm, I'm not playing a game here. I'm running to win, and that's it. So we go, I end up, it's election day, and uh, the polls have me edging Floyd Flake out. Next thing is, this guy Brian McCabe becomes a candidate. He's from Rockaway. So he ends up running, and 4,000 votes from Rockaway, which is all white, uh, duh, that was going to be my votes. And the next thing would happen is, he pulls 4,000 votes. I think I lost by 2,500 votes, and I'm at on in Howard Beach, and I'm at Joe DeCandia's place, Tony Roma. And the next thing is uh, uh, Brian's there, and I said to Brian McCabe, I said, listen, you did a good run. We lost. We give, we'll support our congressman, Floyd Flake, and that's it. He goes, the wife comes over and says, oh, no, we didn't lose. The next day it was announced. That Brian McKay became the chief of staff for Floyd Floyd. So he was sent in there for one reason, to take me out. Welcome to politics, Bo Deedle. And now, you know, I learned from politics at that time, and I learn again when I run for mayor. 
which is going to be later on in my career. So now after I lose, but I didn't lose completely because I met this guy named George Bush, who was the vice president, and we became friends. His daughter, Doro Bush, became my friend. I brought up the Rayos, and the father uh, then brings me on board his campaign for the presidency, and I was the law and order supporter of him. Next thing that happens is he wins, and uh, he calls me to the Oval Office again. I was in the Oval Office between Ronald Reagan and George Bush a few times, and he goes, Bo, you helped me with the campaign. What is it you'll, what do you want? I said, you know what I'd like? I'd like to be like the head of the Drug Commission to give these grants to police departments all over the United States. I'd love to help cops and, and be part of it. He goes, fine. Next thing is federal judge Reggie Walton contacts me, African-American federal judge, calls me to Washington. I meet with him. He goes, we're going to do a round robin on you, Bo. I said, that's fine. Next thing is I get a call from federal judge Reggie Walton. He goes, Bo, you got a problem. I said, what's the problem, John Gotti? I said, well, everyone knows I know John Gotti. Now, one of my best friends at that time was a guy named Jim Fox. He's the assistant director of the FBI in New York office. We became very, very friendly. Him, Ray Kelly, we used to hang out. We used to go to dinner together. Ray Kelly, the police commissioner, became the head of the uh, uh, customs, the head of, uh, uh, of all these federal agencies. So now he tells me that uh, now we're, now we're, 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 we're uh, being interviewed by the federal judge, and he goes, you got a problem. I, I have dinner with uh, Jim Fox. The assistant director of the FBI. I said, Jim, I got a problem. I said, this thing's popping up about my relationship with John Gotti. You know the story. He goes, well, I've investigated. I have dinner with you. I've done round robbers, investigated you thoroughly about any involvement with organized crime. You know what? You know every organized crime member. You have no involvement whatsoever. He ends up writing a letter to the president of the United States, George Bush, I've been in the FBI for over 30 years. I'll put my reputation on Bo Deedle. And the next thing is, I says, wow, this is great. The judge says, this is fine, Bo. I said, do I got the job? He goes, no, there's something else. Senate confirmation. Senate confirmation. I didn't know what it was. So I said, Senate confirmation. So next thing is, I learned that they're going to put your name out there. And there's a lot of jealous people when I retired from the police department. And to say the least, you know, People that don't like you will be sending all kinds of negatives. And I had uh, I had my families, my children, and I didn't want to get dragged through the colds. So I go to see the president. I said, Mr. President, I really don't want that job. Do you have a job for me like where I don't have to go through Senate confirmation? He goes, I'll make you the chairman of the Crime Commission. So President Bush appointed me as the chairman of the Crime Commission in 1989. And I still, to this day, don't know what the hell it was, but I was the chairman of the Crime Commission. And, uh, you know, I started understanding about politics then. So then my career just kept on going. I had a very good accessibility with the president, uh, George Bush also, again in the Oval Office. And uh, next thing that happens is I started doing investigations. I started doing murder investigations. Barbara Mangiamelli, one of the greatest investigations we did with these two creeps, killed this gemologist. Then I mentioned about Daryl King. He was a, a, a black fellow that was arrested for killing a cop back in 1970. We did that investigation. We were able to prove that he didn't kill the cop and get him out of jail. I'm just throwing these investigations around. We rescued a kid out of Istanbul, Turkey, who was kidnapped there, rescued another kid out of Denmark, and it just kept going on. Then I get a call to Carpenters Union. Uh, Bo, 
what would it take to take over the New York City Carpenters Union? I said, it's going to take you a lot of money. I meet with Doug McCarran, who was the head of the Carpenters Union in Washington, and I brought on 100 armed guys. We ended up taking over the whole Carpenters Union security. I ended up taking the uh, president, vice president, taking them all out and controlling them. We took like a receivership of them. And we, we did that. Then we had the big pharmaceutical company investigation. I'm bouncing around a little bit because I could sit here for years and talk about the cases. Because you remember, I've been in private investigation for over 37 years. But the good other good one was the big pharma contacts me. That's the pharmaceutical companies. They call us to Washington, me and Mike Cervola. We sit there in this big conference room. You have a head of a CEO of a pharmaceutical company, a lawyer, because the antitrust, they can't sit together. So they tell us that they are now trying to get this drug bill passed. I think it was 2003. So they go, we hired another co- company called Global Options. But they did a good investigation, but no one knew about it. They go, Bo, do you think you could do the investigation and get it out there? I said, we can do. So next thing is we started buying drugs on the internet, and we started to analyze these drugs that we're buying. We also went to these websites, these these dark-shaded websites that no one knew who they were. So we started the investigation, which we bought drugs, we brought, brought them into the office, we analyzed it. Next thing that happens is the investigation took us to Kashmir, Pakistan, where they were making these drugs, and they were knocking off the labels and all that. Some of these drugs actually were yellow road paint, that people were taking online. And now we're finding out that these drugs, some of them were for insulin. None of them were refrigerated. People injecting insulin that wasn't insulin. They could have died from it. So then we go and we decide to, uh, uh, that they call me back to Washington. They said, we'd like you to become a, uh, a, a lobbyist for the for big pharma. So I become a lobbyist along with Mike Cervola. And now I have to interview and I have to uh, decide and, and tell what happened with our investigation to 40, 40 United States senators. At this time, I was doing IMIS in the morning. So everyone in Washington knew who Bo Deedle was. Every senator I requested to have a meeting with, every one of them took my meeting. And we were able to show the dangers of the drugs being imported. Now, mysteriously, I get a call from the head of the DEA. I think her name was Tandy at that time. She sends a letter, and she sends a DA to my office with a subpoena to hand over all the drugs that you got on the Internet and to find out as far as all my information. Next thing is, they said to me, Bo, can you get it out? So I call my friend Tom Brokaw. That was NBC Nightly News. So I tell Tom about the investigation. I said, tell you what, Tom, I got my daughter Dana, my son Bo. I'm going to have them in my house order drugs online. So we're in my house on Long Island with my two kids, with Dana and, and Bo. I think Dana was seven, Bo was five at the time. Next thing is their dog, Charlie, was there. And uh, Tom Brokaw was sitting there. So I said, you know, order, order some Oxycontin or some Vicodin. Order some good drugs. So my daughter's there. Spell it, Daddy. And now she's ordering drugs for her, for my little son, Bo. I said, order some for Charlie the dog. She put Charlie the dog. She ordered some Vicodin for Charlie the dog. Next thing, two, three days later, it comes in the mail. We open it up, and sure enough, the drugs are in the mail. And Tom Brokaw's again. So this hits national news about the dangers online of buying drugs. 
Next thing is, like I said, we get a subpoena from the head of the DEA. I turn my drugs over. We go back and forth. And the point I'm trying to get is they tried to take me out, and I handed over all my drugs. We were very successful. I lobbied 40 United States senators. The drug bill was passed in 2003. I think that we helped a lot with it. But the point I'm trying to bring out is the the interaction I had with all these United States senators, who I was through I Miss in the Morning, through being uh, on his show two, three times a week, I was able to get it out there. Then at the same time we're doing this, we're handling all kinds of major cases, corporate investigations, uh, due diligence all over the all over the country, all over the world, and we went on and on, and the investigations continue, continue, and then I became I went into the uh, real estate business with Steve Whitkoff, and I became a partner with him uh, back probably in 1990. I became a partner. He said. And we started buying buildings. I became an owner of the Woolworth building, along with about 10 other properties. And it was all over the place. And I was making really good money. I opened up a fish oil vitamin company. I was doing about $8 million a year. Things were great. And uh, I was spending money, and I was making a lot of money. And the next thing is that I was gambling, too, which I'm not proud of. And uh, private jets, going on trips with my brother's to Alaska with my kids and uh, seven, eight days in Alaska, private jet all around, uh, private jets down the Rocky, uh, the Colorado River, Grand Canyons, everywhere, going over to Europe. Uh, my friend would give me his yacht. I'd have my kids on a yacht. I lived the life that people can dream about. My memories, the only problem I had was I was a little foolish about saving money. I thought it would never end, and this could be a lesson to people listening out there. When you're doing real well and you're doing real good financially, save for tomorrow because tomorrow is going to come and you'll want to have that nest egg. And when I look back today and I see the difference of as far as financially, how much money that I had and how much I actually was involved with Danny Del Giorno in 1999. We sold a company called Softworks for $200 million. I mean, these numbers are real and I would not think of going to a, a clothing store, shirts, Ascat Chang, $500 shirts, $5,000 suits. I just loved the, the best parts of life, and I really excelled in spending money. I was very good to the economy of New York and to America. I spent a damn lot of money. Best restaurants all over the city. Every re- restaurant owner wanted me to be a customer, and I was a customer. Out of many nights of the week, and the bad part about it is I didn't spend enough of time with my children. My, I have uh, two sets of children. I have uh, Richard and Jacqueline, and I was, that was when I was a policeman, and then I retired. And then I have Dana and Bo, and I really worked a lot day and night, but I was playing hard, and I look back on my life, or I reflect back in my life, and I wasn't the greatest father, and I, that's one of the things I'm kind of sorry about that I should have devoted more time to my children and been there for them through these. You know, I used to try to make as many uh, soccer games and many sporting events that I could. And then I would take them on these extravagant trips all over the world, wherever I would take them. You know, that doesn't make it up for being home, having dinner with them at night and talking to them and getting in their heads. That was what I was absolutely wrong 
And if you look at your whole life overall and you weigh your life out and say, where did I go wrong? I think I was absentee father for all four of my children. That's one of my downfalls, which I regret. Now we fast forward and we go into the, um, into the teens. And of course we all went through 2008, the, uh, the real estate crisis. And at that time, uh, I had, I ended up losing all my real estate investments with Steve Wickoff. He didn't play me right. And to this day, uh, you know, I feel as though I was not played right by Steve Wickoff, who I was his partner. Everyone in New York knew that. I raised hundreds of million dollars through Lehman Brothers, Hypo Bank. These were contacts. And we'd close deals at Rayo's uh, restaurant. We'd buy this, buy that. And at the same time, we're doing this. Let's go to 1989 after I... Uh, after I was appointed as the chairman of the crime commission and I had met Nick Pelleggi in 85 next Nick calls me and says, we're going to do this movie. And it's about my book. Wise guy. It's going to be called Goodfellas. So we're up in Rayo's. And the next thing is Martin Scorsese's with me. Ellen Lewis, the cast director, Nick Pelleggi, uh, Ray Liotta, Lorraine Bracco. We're in Rayo's, but Rayo's was a little different than in 1989. We had characters from the neighborhood. PD neck, his neck was stuck. Johnny Roast Beef, he owned the deli. Mikey Black, dark complexion. Frankie Nose, his nose was out like this. So Martin Scorsese sees these characters at the bar. And he goes, Bo, can we come back next week? Anybody wants to be in Goodfellas, tell them to show up. We came back the next Thursday. That's my Thursday night. And we end up casting no less than 15, including Frankie, my dear friend, Frankie Pellegrino. He's in Goodfellas. We cast everybody out of Rayo's. And in Goodfellas, you see the bar scenes in, Ray, uh, in Goodfellas. These are characters that we cast. Uh, 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 you had the fellow from the Copacabana, uh, uh, Pomini, and the other fellow, uh, uh, Tony Lip. He was casted also. And I tell you what, it was fantastic. Then I got close to Martin Scorsese, and he, I was fortunate to be put in to five of his different projects, including The Wolf of Wall Street. This is going on at the same time. Wolf of Wall Street. I get a call from uh, uh, Dick Grosso from the New York Stock Exchange. Bo, I got this guy, Stratton Oakmont. His name's Jordan Belford. He's being shaken down by some wise guys out on Long Island. He needs help. Go out and see him. I go out and see him. He tells me that he's, uh, uh, whatever his name, Nunzio, uh, Tony Nohead, whatever the hell their names were, uh, gave him the cards. I said, well, here, here's my card. When they come back, you tell them I'm your partner. And next thing is I'm bodyguarding him. Uh, Jordan Belfort, a little creep. He's always stoned on quaaludes. And next thing is, you know about the Wolf of Wall Street, the movie. It depicts him really, really well. He was a he was a quaalude junkie. That's what he was. Never did too many good things for charities. I'll never forget it. I never could give him the, get him to give money. And then he ripped off people about two hundred million dollars. And that whole picture then becomes a movie with Scorsese. And the next thing is. Scorsese calls me because, you know, we got this part for Bo Deedle. You're, out, you're throughout the book. He goes, who are we going to get to play it? I said, who are you going to get to play it? I'm playing myself. And the rest is history. And uh, we actually filmed. Frankie gave us permission. We filmed in Rayo's the scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and me uh, sitting in the back when I say to Leo, stop taking those effing quaaludes. The last time you fell asleep in your macaroni and he's popping quaaludes. True story. The real Jordan Belford fell asleep in the macaroni. I picked his head up, wiped him off. I told one of my guys, get him in the car, get him the hell out of here. He's a friggin' embarrassment. And today, he's doing podcasts. 
He's like uh, the most famous guy in the world, private jets. So, excuse me. <clears throat> so when you tell me crime doesn't pay, I don't know. And I think he paid back $11 million. I wonder where the other 180 something million dollars are, but uh, that's a good question. So then that happens, and then uh, with the movie industry, we do a thing called vinyl with uh, the Martin Scorsese, and then we all know that probably the greatest movie part I had, Marty calls me again, and I get a great part with these two B-list actors. Only kidding. The great, uh, the great uh, Al Pacino and uh, Robert De Niro in the movie called The Irishman was one of my greatest uh, roles because working with these two great actors just was the epitome of acting. And I've been in, I think, 85 to 100 different TV shows and movies. But that, to me, The Irishman was the coup de gras. And to be with these great actors was wonderful. You know, this this time now we're going to wind down here. I thought I hope I gave the audience... A little bit of color. There's, there's so much in. I could be here for months talking about them. In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about some really interesting uh, subjects. But the most important thing you got to realize is from leaving the police department, I didn't quit. My life just began then. And I networked beyond anything. I was with chairmans, with Jack Welch, major chairmans, Ken Langone, uh, Dick Fold, uh, 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 Warren Buffett, Radar head, what's his name? The guy from Microsoft, Dick, Bill Gates, all of them. I would have up to Rayo's, my Thursday night table. I used to think that it was me when it turns out to be my Rayo's table. My Rayo's table is the reason that all these people wanted to be my friends because they had accessibility to the greatest table of any restaurant in the world every Thursday night. And I really believe without Rayo's table, I wouldn't be the Bo Deedle that I am today. And that's uh, a subject that we spoke about on another podcast. But I go look it up, uh, Rayo's Table, and you'll understand what it's all about. And again, I hope I didn't bore anybody, but this is Bo's life. This is the second part of two. And then next week we'll have a really exciting topic. And I want to thank everybody for tuning into the podcast. This is not no fluff piece. This is really the good the bad and the ugly of Bo Tittle's life. And I made a lot of money. I spent a lot of money. I wasn't the greatest father or husband in the world, but I do love my children. I actually love all my ex-wives, and I love my Margot more than anything in the world. She is now the most important lady in my life, and I'm very happy with my life right now. Because to be in love is to be in life. God bless everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.